Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, the 27th of the 11th. Michael, how have you been? I'm wonderful, Gary, wonderful. Waiting for Advent, like all of us. Oh, I did want to start by just giving a quick shout-out to the person who made a donation to Gript in our name and uh, gave the value of the RTE television licence that he had stopped paying. Well, that was very nice, and um, you know, Grift is a is a very a good cause. But I think maybe I wasn't clear before. If you're going to make donations, cash, cheese, salami, wine, Brown Thomas gift vouchers, whatever it happens to be, make it out in person. Okay, Michael Dwyer. Okay. Not that I'm against you, other people. You give something to Grip afterwards. That's that would be lovely too. Also, if you're looking for gifts that Michael will really enjoy for Christmas, I would recommend smelling salts and a corset loosener. Well, if you, I don't know. I I'm going to stop with the whalebone, Gary. I just don't think I'm not happy that it's ecologically sound anyway. Michael, I think it might be hard to take this in, but you don't have the hips for it. <laughs> I don't know, but I think it ex- it just it, it 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 works so well with my with my bosom that you know it really it accentuates my curves. Yeah, that's 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 a funny joke there from Gary. Thank you. So I I did want to start this episode off by saying a couple of people have reached out to us about uh, Labour's bill relating to citizenship and how that relates to uh, the Twenty Seventh Amendment of the Irish Constitution, which made us change from. Uh, just sanguinis to just soli uh, by way of determining citizenship i think we're going to talk about that on sunday i think we did touch on it a year or two ago on the show before i think we, we were actually yeah. ungripped but we, we will go through it in a level of detail which will either be really interesting if you're interested in that sort of thing or excruciatingly painful if you're not i don't know or both. You know, or i don't both. know I, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that it could be both Valleys and peaks. It's it's how these things work. However, so, there, so for today's show, I wanted to start off with a, a round of congratulations, Michael. Uh, I think someone had uh, done fantastically. You remember the story in Carlo that we were talking about last week, Michael? And we were saying that it might be true, but there's absolutely no proof about this school and teachers saying that students were distracting male teachers with their womanly figures. Indeed. Yeah, so uh, John McGurk of, of Gript finally managed to get in touch with some of the staff in the school. And what they said was that, well, what the teachers actually said was that, girls, you have to wear your proper uniform. You're, you're, you're breaking the uniform code and we are being driven to distraction, chasing you up on all of these infractions. Right, which is not exactly the same thing. I would say, Michael, it is at least slightly different. Yeah. Now, the internet, whatever about that, the Irish Times has now published something on it which was basically highly critical of it and suggested it never happened. But what I've also noticed has started to happen is that all of those people who made jokes about the teachers being pedophiles, many of them being, you know, quite well-known people in the uh, in the community, like Richie Sadler, who uh, have... All of that material has just started to vanish, Michael. Just gone. But Gary, if somebody was going to do a a, a web search, w- would there be a way they could look like for an, uh, do an archive search for for the stuff that had previously been up? Is is that possible to find something that had previously been there but isn't there now? So 
for the most part, yes. It, it can be quite awkward depending on how you're doing it and how much material you go back through. And there are ways of getting around it, most of which I use on my own Twitter account and pretty much everything I do because I've done a lot of this sort of stuff and you, you don't want to make it easy for people, Michael. No, gosh, no. So, and of course, some, some people may have taken screenshots, of course, of these. Uh, oh, yes, there's many, many screenshots. And some of those screenshots were forwarded onto Gript for our personal enjoyment, I'm sure. Because, Michael, in a time when Gript is being presented as this horribly biased um, media, which you can't trust, it's new, it could be anything, it could be disinformation, it could be fake news, it kind of looks like we were right... And nearly every mainstream media outlet in the country was wrong. I'm still left with two questions. One more news than the other one. is: I saw this story. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I saw it. It came into my timeline as a tweet, which I retweeted simply with the comment, I believe this dot, dot, dot. Because nowhere could I see anything... First of all, from my knowledge of schools, which is not, I have some knowledge of schools, just it seemed bizarre. Unless the person doing the making the comment was, was drunk and thought they were making a joke, which would be problematic in a school if you somebody drunk giving assemblies, but just didn't see. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find the bottom of the story. It didn't seem to go anywhere. But the other point, and maybe sort of bound up to it, is. The speed at which everybody decided they had to come to a conclusion about this incident. I mean, we have learned nothing, apparently, from farmers. Like, do you remember the Covington incident with the video? People saw a couple of minutes of video from COVID, from the Covington kids in Washington, and everybody came to a conclusion. And there are hundreds of thousands of tweets and comments and demands and doxings and all sorts of things. And then the next day, the next thing, the next video came out and people go, oh, now the gen- young man who was the, the centre of that has gone around with a bag of money collecting from from newspaper to, to television station. And I think he's probably still going around. He's now left the United States and has started touring Europe. Yes, so, he's, he's taking the show on the road, Michael. Why it was necessary... To come to so rapid a conclusion about a story, this story, rather than to wait for a few hours to see if you could actually get a confirmation, if you could get clarity, if you could get somebody to go on the record and not anonymous, when nobody has yet explained to me why the story, even if it were true, was a front page story that required a petition with thousands of people on it, where the Labour Party was going, putting a motion down, where people, yeah, people are writing articles in the newspaper. There's an article, which I, I haven't read, I will confess, but in the Independent today, which is, why are we making girls responsible for how adult men react to their bodies? Now, it may have nothing to do with that story, but it sounds very much like the tone of an awful lot of people who are talking about this. But girls and bodies and adult men reacting and perving and blah, 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 blah. Why was this ever so important? Even if you're complete, let alone an unconfirmed story. Let's you take your time. When, you're, when you have ordinary people involved in something and you are coming pretty close to you know, doing something fairly nauseating to their professional and personal good name, 
and reputation. You know, a little bit of foot on the brake mightn't be a bad thing. Well, I think that, that relates to where congratulations, I think, are due now, Michael. Because, let's say, I mean, gripped could be wrong. The The teachers could be either misinformed or have given an inaccurate statement. Yes. So, you know, there's still, there's still the potential that this story is correct. But what I noticed there the other day, Michael, is that um, the reporter who brought this to national prominence yes. has deleted every single tweet she wrote about this situation, of which there were a fair number. They're all gone. Everything. Doesn't show a lot of faith in the story. No, I, I will say, however, that, and this is you know, uh, just a bit of personal help for her if she happens to be listening, she should also go back through her liked tweets because she was liking tweets that were defending her, but one of them says, um, in relation to the story, says, the story, this is something she liked, not something she she wrote herself. The story yes. wasn't false. Who denied it? The men trying to keep up an image. The girl students have said it themselves, and even the boys are standing in solidarity. Stop defending pedophiles and protect girls. Now, that to me, given the context, would very clearly indicate that they're referring to male teachers in that school as pedophiles, pretty explicitly. Yeah. And I think if this person were to be, let's say, sued by uh, 17-odd male teachers... That might be the sort of thing that when presented to a court, the fact she had liked that, a judge may take that into account. But anyway, on to the actual congratulations. Uh, this journalist won the uh, News Reporter of the Year on October the 2nd, so she managed to get nearly two entire months before immolating her reputation, Michael, which I think is a very impressive run. Applause. Well done. Well done. Golf clap for everyone. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I, I have very much enjoyed seeing the, the slow disappearance of things, because it looks like this... No one is going to accept they made a mistake here, if it is shown to be a mistake, as it now appears to be. It's just going to be memory hold until and unless the lawsuits start. No one will apologise, no one will do anything. It just We'll just put that to the side and forget the colossal fuck-up we did. In the same way that... um. You know, let's say claims that an image trove might have you know, child pornography in it, and then having the guards come out and say, "Well, we went through it and we couldn't find any." That might be a bit of a bit of a fuck up as well on the media side of things, Michael. Well, yeah, that would sound very like what you could categorise as a fuck up. Yeah, and were both of those to happen in the same week, I mean, that mm. would be that would be deeply embarrassing. Particularly if, let's say, on both of those issues, Gripped had said, this is a bit odd, isn't it? We're not saying it's not right, but it's just a bit odd. Some, something not quite right about this on the face of it. Maybe, maybe it bears a little closer examination before we go the full Monty on it. But we just wanted to open with that sort of bit of a victory lap, but also kind of interesting to see... Like, we talked about why this was a dodgy story to start and how it had spread, and now we're seeing realisation that maybe this doesn't hold up spread in the media and amongst commentators who really should have known better. And just the slow, like, time to slink away, boys. No apology. No, just didn't happen. Not our fault. Not our fault. One of those things. Just one of those things. There's nothing else happening in the world anyway, so... We hope you don't take offence. 
Yeah, we don't really care. But we we hope you don't take a loss, so I think it's probably closer to the truth. I have been threatened with legal action over a number of stories I've written for Gripped, because I tend to do more of the investigative stuff, and it's just part and parcel of it. But, like, if I had written a story in which I had either directly said, or I had presented facts in such a way that other people would then arguably think those people that certain people might be pedophiles, I would expect to be sued. Like, I wouldn't expect a threat. I would expect to be sued. Well, the P word that sounds is, uh, it's just about the worst thing you can say about a person. And then if I had gone and liked a tweet saying, or in any way indicating that those saying I was wrong were defending pedophiles, that would be momentously stupid, Michael. I mean, at an incredible level. That is the sort of thing that will end up, if this goes to court, being brought up. And it will not go well. Well, it's, I'm sure, shall we say, on mature reflection, it's something that the individual probably would regret doing. Mm. Oh, there is one other thing, just a, a little a little note that I, I haven't had time to look into, and I think John McGurk might be looking into further. We were talking about um, a guy, a, a Kurdish Danny, uh, a Kurdish man, who had uh, gotten a very nice apartment in Rathgar. Um, and we were talking about how he was in Canada for a while, and it was just, the timing was really weird of it. But I just wanted to make a, a short note to say that he was on the hard shoulder today, um, mm-hmm. yesterday, and he said he had been in this country for 16 years. Well, if he was in the country 16 years, then there, shall we see, that would, he would be on the... Uh... The waiting list, presumably, for housing. for. But we know in 2015 he put in a complaint uh, to the Calvary International Airport where he had been working about a race, an allegedly racist instance and that he was in Canada for a while on a two-year work visa. So, so he, was, he was working in Calgary Airport? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure for how long. Well, you know, I'm just thinking it's a whore of a commute. Well, if it's in Canada, he's working in Canada, living in Rathgar, it's still a whore of a commute. Because you're still on the, you're on the south side, you're going to have to fly into the airport even then. Then you have to face the M50, go, oh, it's just a nightmare. Just, if he's been here for 16 years, and at some point he had a two-year work visa in Canada, and he did go there and he was working, and in 2015 he made a complaint, for that to work, and for him to have been in this country 16 years without pause, he would have had to go to Canada in 2002, somewhere around then, made a complaint about something that happened to him in 2002, in 2015, and then, I, I don't, I don't... No, you're doing, you're doing, you're, you're doing, you do this thing to me, you do this maths thing, you know, if a train is travelling at 35 miles an hour and leaves Athen Rye while a bus is leaving Tremor travelling 60 miles an hour, and it just, I don't like it. You know, you're asking me to do 16 years if he was living in Calgary in 2002, I, I don't know. It's, I, I'm, I, I'm going, I'm, I think we, we will look into this more because it's just, it's just an odd, he, if he was here 16 years, then him getting a house would be way less odd because he'd be way over the average time. But if he if he wasn't here 16 years, or how does... I, I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just curious. Where does Canada fit into this? How did that happen? Mm. This is the worst thing you can do in an interview, Michael. Yeah. Say something potentially interesting. That's why I, in all these podcasts, 
judiciously stay away from saying anything of interest to anyone. I'm not going to make any comment on that, as you lay elephant traps before me for me to fall into. Uh, it is indeed an interesting story. Um, as I say, he may have been commuting. It's a difficult commute, but you know, if you like the job and you like your apartment, sometimes they're the choices you have to make. I think it was the curé of ours that had what was called the gift of ubiquity, which means he could be in two places at one time. Um, Is and that it's, something generally found within the Kurdish population? Well, it's, it's usually associated with people of great holiness or sanctity. So I just, you know, you never know. I could see some of the Kurdish people I met working in airports exhibiting that. There was a chap who used to work behind the bar in my local. He was Kurdish. He was a very good guy. Um, so, and he used to do this eggplant dish. It was fantastic. By the way, if Azad is out there listening to this, give me a shout, Azad. We'll go for a pint over Christmas. It turns out we will shortly be freed, Michael, in a limited and specific way. No, 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 we're not getting freed. What we're going is we're going to be moved from, say, Alcatraz or Angola. More Angola, I think, when you're that prison in Louisiana. And we're going to be moved down to maybe one of those slightly less secure federal penitentiaries. We're not going to be free, but we will have a ping-pong table and maybe better visiting hours. And it looks like restaurants will be allowed to open at some point, despite Neffet saying that they thought that they shouldn't be. They should only be allowed to serve takeaway through Christmas. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this. This great stuff. First of all, there was an odd thing. I don't know if you noticed the first time it was floated that restaurants were going to be allowed to open. A number of the stories were, went with the story that restaurants would be allowed to reopen on a permanent basis. Did you see that? I didn't. The one I saw was the uh, restaurants will only be allowed to, or sorry, pubs will only be allowed to reopen if they've got a chef and kitchen on side. Yeah, no, I I presume that applies to restaurants, although you know what, I've been in restaurants where I was far from convinced they had a chef on site. This this was in a more sorry about the restaurants, but they're going to be open on a permanent basis, which I, it was as if they were saying, what well, we're, we're going now, lads, is we're going to say we're open up the restaurants and be confident we will not be closing you again. And I just wondered, wondered if the government is now starting to fit in the the vaccine into its plans for say the next six months that we're it's going to go on the basis that we we're, well if we, we we can open a little bit here and a little bit there and do a little bit as long as we don't do too much now as other people have been pointing out the government here is talking about rolling out vaccines uh next summer whereas the brits are talking about having finished the vaccinations by next summer and people are saying well, how come them not us but i'm sure there's a good reason for that did the thing about the pubs is a lot of pubs have done this thing where they come to an agreement with a local restaurant or takeaway where they provide menus and people can sit at the table, order food, and then the food is brought in from outside. And two local businesses are supported in not a perfect way, but in a way that might allow them to just keep their head above water. But now, no, you'll have to have a chef and a kitchen on site. Because I, I just want I, I all I want is, is is a reasonable explanation, the kind of explanation that I could sell to an eight year old child, because otherwise it sounds a bit like the virus is at the door of the gastro pub, pushes the door open, shouts in, is the chef in, 
Barman says, no, chef's not in. In goes the virus and like Billy O infects all of the people sitting there eating their pizza. Alternatively, goes in, is the chef in? Yes, the chef is in. Sorry to have bothered you. I'll go next door. Michael, it's a disease, not a temping agency. I, I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me this is a this is a very curious, selective, discriminating kind of a disease. It wants, this is a kind of a disease, Gary, that looks at the receipts. No, Michael, I might be slightly cynical here for a moment, if I could be. No, no, Gary. Perhaps this may less reflect the state of you know, the science on this and more reflect the fact that there is a general, shall we say, uh, feeling of, uh, shall we say, that there's perhaps a slight bias against alcohol in some of the public health community in Ireland and that, you know, no good crisis should go to waste. Well, yeah, obviously, if you can punish the drinker, drink is the curse of the working classes on much as work is the course of the drinking classes. We we want to be down with the drink, down with the bad stuff. Now, if you're having a bottle of maybe, oh, I don't know, the 1997 Gaia Barolo, which I imagine you'd probably be able to get for, I actually have no clue, 900,000 quid, uh, then that would be okay. That would be fine. That would not affect you. You wouldn't get pissed on that. But two pints of Foster's, three pints of Foster's, ooh, very dangerous. I mean, the, the thing that immediately came to mind when I heard this announced was uh, George Carlin used to have a bit about a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. And I, I, don't, I think it came to mind because it just, it reminded me of the sort of wanton destructiveness of the flame waffen. But uh, George Carlin's bit is, uh, consider for a second how a flamethrower came to be a thing. You had to have a situation where someone sat down and went, gee, I really would like to set those people on there over fire, but they're just too far away for me to get the job done. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it, it seems, as I said, I've, I've talked to a number of people, small business owners who have kind of paired with restaurants and it's it's keeping them afloat. Now it's, you know, it's not, perfect it's not what they would choose to go for but it is allowing two small businesses to continue operating at a time when they may not otherwise operate and it kind of seems unnecessary to kick them in the balls right now like doesn't we we currently have the lowest daily covid rates in europe when you look at the where outbreaks have been happening across uh, most of europe very few of them are linked to pubs I mean, we Leo came out and said that if we open the pubs, there could be more house parties. Hold on now. No, I'm sure I remember being told that the pubs being closed and the off-licenses being open was leading to more house parties. Or is it both? Is it the pubs being open and is it like a Schrodinger's? It's a Schrodinger's house party, Gary. You don't know until you open the box, is the pub open or closed? Yeah, the, the, it it has become quite fluid now. There's a sort of, well, if we open the pubs, people have more house parties. And I would have thought that more people will get drunk in pubs rather than houses. But yeah, now but, the situation was really, well, both of these things would happen. But people shouldn't be getting drunk, Gary. 
I'm sure we were told that they shouldn't be getting drunk because they should only be in the pub for what is it, an hour and a half? Yeah, I, I I will say this during the entire time in which the pubs were let open but were asked to restrict you to ninety minutes, I was never asked to leave a pub. I don't think I was in a pub. I went. I had a couple of business meetings around that time, maybe three or four, and it's Ireland, so you do them in pubs for the most part or restaurants. But oh, these are these business meetings you had in Cafe on Seine at half twelve at night. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah, God, life's tough, Gary, isn't it? They're business expenses, Michael. Absolutely. And I don't think I was ever moved. And that to me actually seemed perfectly reasonable because if they'd moved us, we would have just gone to a different pub. I've never seen you moved. I don't know what you'd look like. Do you mean emotionally or physically? There's wordplay, Gary, wordplay. I I thought you did mean emotionally. I am not known for the variety of facial expressions I possess. No, you run all of the emotions, the gamut of emotions from A to B. Occasionally an eyebrow comes up slightly in a contemptuous fashion. That's the but anyway, as you say, yes, uh, uh, on Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar uh, has said that the opening pubs could lead to a, an increase in house parties. I wonder what the tonnage to Michal Martin thinks about that. Is Michal, as a Fianna Fáil, or is he, he should be more pro-pub, shouldn't he? Um, I don't know. I don't know what Fianna Fáil stands for anymore. I thought it was building houses, but apparently it's not that. No, certainly not that. Nothing to do with developers or building or or tents in Galway. Or have you been uh, have you been watching the dolls since the, the that homeless or that people keep saying homeless person. This this is moderately irritating because there's homeless people and there are rough sleepers and they are not the same thing. All You're rough right. sleepers are homeless, but nowhere near all homeless are rough sleepers. A rough sleeper died near the yes. doll. Yes. And have you been listening to these politicians standing up and talking about you know, how terrible this was and how it shows the government is failing and how we have to do more? And, you know, just full-throated defences of the rights of these people to not freeze to death in the streets. Oh, it's nauseous. And then you look at them and you sort of go, how many houses has your party stopped being built? Not even this year, this month. Yeah, in some this, cases, it's several this week. If you, you could have said this week, last week. And I I just, I, I don't care if we solve the housing crisis or not, as long as these people just stopped acting like this. Don't. Uh, God. My, 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 they are, when you, I listen to them, I'm reminded of my grandmother who, in similar circumstances, would say, it is a wonder they don't choke on them as the words come out of their mouths. I, I, shameless is one word you could use, but there are others, but I won't. I mean, I'm all for political expendency, some, Michael, and sometimes you just have to knife someone. But it's mm-hmm. not holier than thou. Like, we really believe what we're saying. Like, you've made matters substantially worse. So either you don't know that, because you don't care about enough about the issue to figure it out, or you do know that. And you've decided it's either worth it for the greater good or for local popularity. In which case, I, I, I don't think I need to treat you seriously because you'll say anything. You see, I think if you'd read the manifestos carefully, Gary, you would see that when the time comes, there will be housing for everyone. And everyone will be able to lie under the trees where the birds and the bees sit in the cigarette trees on the Sugar Rock Candy Mountain. And they will be whiskey in the rivers. 
and it will be everybody will be sorted out. You just can't have it quite yet because of the forces of reaction and capitalism, of course. I mean, Candy Mountain is still zoned as industrial land. Well, yes, indeed, and that's unfortunate. But I think that we need, we could get it resolved. Uh, but only if it's done properly on public land using the local government with the help of the national government. I don't think we don't want any developers getting involved in Sugar Rock Candy Mountain because they ruin it, Gary. Mm-hmm. What we what we really need is we need a we need to take the model the the innovative and pioneering model that we saw in the children's hospital where you had two state-appointed boards, each handling different aspects of the build, and neither of them really sure who was running certain parts of it. Yeah. And, you know, designing a building 10 years ago when it has to be updated to match equipment. And uh, I think that, when we apply it to public housing, will, I mean, deal, just just deliver value for money. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm sure they'll be able to bring in a three-bedroom semi-detached for comfortably for 500000 a pop. I mean, Michael, you know it's bad when you look at something and you go, actually, BAM is probably the least of the financial issues here. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is a company who, the, the most common phrase about BAM I've heard from talking to people in the industry is BAM and the budget's gone. <laughs> Actually, I I don't think they have much fault on this at all. It looks like an absolutely catastrophically designed project. From the get-go? From the get-go, and and then all we've done at different stages is add new layers of ineptitude. And now, at this point, it's it's some sort of fractal fuck-up. These are the people that our friends from Sugar Rock Candy Mountain Party want and are confident to entrust the job of providing housing for the people. And they are confident that the same people that run this will be able to produce large amounts of well-built, cheaply built, uh, relative, because there'll be no profit. I, I, I just have this image of the same thing happening for public housing and the state handling all of it, and a family arriving on site to be met by a lovely bureaucrat who tells them that due to a mix-up between the boards the house that they were assigned to is actually a small horse. <laughs> yes, a small horse in Leitrim. Yes, commuting distance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not on the horse, of course, but we are we are looking at uh, putting in a fast rail connection to Leitrim within the next 25 years. But from the state losing homeless people and homes and money to something else that the state has now lost, Michael, uh up to 2,000 cancer cases may have been, and this is in quotes, lost. Yeah, I, I'm going to need some help on this one. How precisely do you lose a cancer case? What well, does that mean? Do you remember we were talking a while ago about how lockdowns might have ripple effects because they might drive down, let's say, the amount of people going to cancer appointments and things like that, and... If you weren't careful, you may arguably kill more people than you save, which would be bad, traditionally. Yeah, yeah, that would be unfortunate. It turns out, at least uh, according to the National Director of the National Cancer Control Programme, that's happened. What has happened? Well, it turns out that lots of people are just not going to, um, are not going to appointments to check for cancer, 
and other ones are being cancelled, and then there's issues with rescheduling, and there's just a general well of disruption that um, has meant we have, in his words, lost up to 2,000 cancers. Now, I go with last time I checked the daily, the, the total COVID-19 debt rate in Ireland, it was, oh, about 2,000. Actually, nearly exactly 2,000. 2,036, I think he was today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so we've lost pretty much that, uh, according to the National Cancer Control Programme. Are you sure they don't just mean mislaid or cases have been postponed and sine die without any... I I think when they say lost, what they mean is missed. As in, when they should have been discovered, they were missed. Okay, right. And that would be grim. I did. You know when you you hear a doctor talking and they're just, they're not thinking about what they're saying, how it sounds to the public? Yeah. So... They were asking uh, the the head of this program and about what the impact would be. And he was like, well, the impact is going to vary from person to person. And you've got to remember that um, a lot of these people are going to be older. And in that case, the effect of, of these missed cases is going to be lower because uh, other causes of death may intervene before we find out. Okay. Like, technically true, but you might want to finesse it before you take it on the road. <laughs> yeah. You want to try that in the clubs before you do your, your Netflix special. Yeah, well, I suppose what the man means is that, and which we all know, that if you're talking about certain kinds of cancers, that if when they occur in older people, because the met- older people have slower metabolism, this is also true of certain cancers, and that, like, for example, I, I, I remember reading somewhere, if it's true, I don't know, that if you're a man and you're over the age of 70, the chances are that you have some kind, you, you, you will have some kind of a problem with your prostate, but that it's so slow growing that generally speaking, something else will kill you before you get there. Well, that's very uplifting. Well, <laughs> you know, it's usually you bringing the good news today. Maybe it's me. Uh, of course, the thing that, that obviously with cancer, because of its nature and because of, as we know, uh, the speed of diagnosis and then the speed of treatment is so central to good outcomes. It, this is particularly, it's a, this is a horrible kind of thing, gruesome. But it's not happening just in cancer. It's not just about, it's happening across the board. I was talking to someone today. Um, a friend of his has, has, shall we say, organic-based cognitive difficulties. Um, they need a certain amount of medical help. They won't be given it because... To get the consultation, they need a scan, but the scan has been cancelled and they can't get, a, because of COVID, and it was cancelled, and now they can't get another appointment. And until they've had the scan, they can't get the assessment. And it's just a horrible thing. They're left with uh, the situation they're in. It's, it's really, really bad. And I, I can't imagine that that man is the only person in that kind of situation. Listen, Gary, neither of us are uh, epidemiologists, neither of us are working there. Uh, we can we can ask the questions. We, I would like to see more senior journalists from the newspapers and from the television asking these gen- questions. And I would have liked to see them ask them six or seven months ago about the nature of 
the, the lockdown and how it was going, how the balance was being organized. It may be that this is the nature of the beast, that while we're going to have, shall we say, collateral fatalities because of the management of the health system, that this is something which is inevitable and this is just a bad situation where they're trying to find the best outcomes. No, I, I, I think the thing here is to say that you can look at all of this and say whatever lockdown, whatever restriction was still the best way for the minimization of the loss of human lives. But I, I, I think our point when we started talking about this in earlier shows, months and months ago, was that we weren't doing a full sort of appraisal of the actual impacts of what we were doing. Yeah. We were just saying we have to do this because of COVID-19 and not going, okay, but what are the effects of this? So for instance, a fall in GDP is a very dry economic figure. However, there has been a great deal of work in showing the impact that every fall in GDP, uh, every... every uh, Every point. Every point has with worse health outcomes. Yes, yeah, that's established, well-established science. I suppose it is possible. In fact, I would hope, it's not more than possible, I, I hope it's likely, that there have been proper balanced economic medical studies done where they have looked at the outcomes and said, well, this is how we achieve the best balance of the outcome. What we haven't heard is that kind of thinking being articulated at any of the press conferences or in the information, both either from the government or from, from NEFET. So if it is going on, it's not being talked about. And I think it would be, I think it would be worthwhile to have the sense that these things are being at least considered because in the absence of any kind of, rec of any, of any kind of, commentary of, of this nature, you start to wonder if these, if it is being simply left to doctors. Now, I'm sure from a medical perspective, the epidemiologists, the virologists, all the clinicians are doing their absolute best and working completely good faith. However, they're not economists. There are things which fall outside of their area of expertise. It falls outside their magisterium and therefore that there are decisions that they are not best placed to make. I did. I mean, I did see one of Ortiz's favorite purveyors of doom, one of the doctors, uh, saying basically that people shouldn't comment on medical matters because they weren't experts in it. And, you know, it's important to recognize where you don't know what you don't know. And then they asked him about the economy and he gave a, a very, very... Uh, full-hearted defense of why this was absolutely the best thing for the economy. You just sort of sit there going, if you really believed people shouldn't talk outside their areas of expertise, like you really believed it, you would have said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not an economist as opposed to, because now it just seems like your principle is I can talk about whatever I want and you can't because mm. you disagree with me, which is uh, not a great one. And actually, Michael, you did say we're not epidemiologists, and we're not. We're nowhere near it. However, considering that we were uh, pushing for several things that eventually the public health system moved towards way before they were, and consistently so, we, I think, you know, were we to score up everything? 
we may have done actually quite a bit better than some of them. Well, yeah, that's, that might be so. But what we can say confidently is, while the doctors are no doubt expert, expert in their field, first of all, it is not the case. There, are, there is one opinion about the management of this disease amongst all expert, credentialed, good-faith medical, medical personnel. There, there is a variety of opinions. Secondly, if we're talking about the economy, for a start, there's no way the doctors can have any sense of how much is the economy going to contract? How much is, what are the losses going to be incurred by the economy? What kind of, what kind of unemployment are we looking at? What are the prospects for growth or recovery uh, in, the, in the future? What are those, what, how, do the, how does that contraction in GDP and that diminution of general wealth, how is that going to impact, for example, on the funding of the health service? How is that going to impact on the income uh, available to ordinary people in the economy? And how is that going to further impact on their health outcomes, their well-being and their wellness? These are questions they can't, but economists might have a, a stab at it at least. They can come up with answers within certain parameters and at least consider those factors. There's no way a doctor, there's no way an epidemiologist is going to be able to do that. Uh, so, yes, as you say, he was speaking outside of his own magisterium and it kind of undermined the point he was initially making. Um, I'm at the moment just going to stay inside my house until I hear the doorbell ring with the man from FedEx who's arrived with my. Uh, Minus 76 degree delivery of uh, Pfizer's uh, vaccine. I mean, it is actually a, a really inconsiderately timed lockdown because if it could go until the the 10th, that's when uh, Cyberpunk 2077 comes out, which like, you're probably not aware of, but which is a very hotly anticipated video game. Gary, who out there is not waiting for it? I mean, now that we've got over our wait for the for the P five, you know, this is the next thing on my list. I would traditionally be referred to as the PS five, but I I'll allow it. And there's an X something out as well. I think it's probably best you don't try and bullshit your way through this one. There is an X something out because somebody was selling a P five because I don't. It's a new thing, and he'd been given one by some. Some I don't know, and therefore he had a, he had he had the other P thing which everybody's looking for. Apparently you can't get them, and he was looking he was selling it online. So I was thinking of buying it because I know somebody who wants it for Christmas, but I'm not absolutely sure that he wasn't going to get one for Christmas, so I didn't take the risk. But I mean, anyway, you're telling there's some what is it? Dogs of War Mega Death is coming out. No, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. That's what I said. It's effectively the same, sure. Yeah. Anyway, why why do you want that on the tenth? Well, I mean, if the lockdown could continue past its release, then it would just make it so much easier for people. It's also actually, Michael, it's 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 a point of why we should pay more attention to video games, because the overall budget for that game, when you include marketing, could easily hit two hundred and fifty, three hundred million. Wow. And some of the estimates of how many uh, how many copies it will shift. You're looking, you know, half a million to three quarters of a billion in one year 
and if it's got a long tail, most video games don't, but if it does because of the, the genre it's in, you could be looking over a billion. I mean, it is it is a cultural product of a massive scale. And I think there's only one or two video games, maybe only one in Grand Theft Auto V that have been of this scale before. This is This is something I don't get. I'm not a gamer, so it's not part of my milieu. But what I don't get is the absence of discussion about video games and the cultural importance of video games. The the market for video games, the value of that market, has been bigger than the market for Hollywood movies for quite some time now. But we have this huge amount of talk and chatter about Hollywood movies and the Oscars and the Golden Globes and all these people and the size of the, and the budgets of movies and all this thing. But I don't know how long, but it's, it's quite some time since the... Uh, the, the 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 video game market surpassed the value of 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 the hollywood hollywood productions and yet there's no nobody talks about it it's just regarded as a niche interest yeah i mean they're still primarily seen as toys i mean you can see that in the prestige attached to the people who uh, review them so i mean uh, good film critics for quite a prestigious position in most yeah, organizations. Yeah. Good video game reviewers, no one cares. Like, it's a toy. But I think when you actually look at cultural impact, video game is way up there. And I think because of the... I think video games have the potential to do things that films simply cannot do because video games are built around the idea of um, interaction with the user mm. in a way that a film simply couldn't. So I think you can build things into a... You can build a movie in a video game if you want to. I mean... Konami has basically been that in spades and some developers kind of go down that way. But you can also do things that a film couldn't do. And I think properly fleshed out, it could be an incredibly uh, impactful cultural medium, an artistic medium. I tell you, not just that. A few years ago, I got to know a chap who was working in this, in the the business. He went out to India for a year to work for an Indian company. They do a lot of online games. And he came back trained, and he's and he was you were chatting, and he out for a drink with a, a couple of his mates, and they were talking about what a well-regarded game designer can make. If you're in the business of, if you're in the game design, and and you you you've a good name, there is a lot of money that people will pay you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an industry that the bottom levels and the mid levels are filled with highly passionate young people who work for basically nothing and sleep on their desks. Mm. But if you're good, you get to a high enough level, and now this is in an industry where massive amount of turnover and not a lot of um, stability, you can make significant money. Like the, um, the cyberpunk game I mentioned, Michael, the staff involved with that because they had to delay it and staff had to work extra hours, they offered staff a profit share in a game that could make over a billion. Right. So, like, also the studio is based primarily in Poland, although I believe they have a American studio. So if you're based in Poland, the uh, quality of life you could get if that game does well, incredible. Because these studios are big, but they're not that big compared against those kind of sums of money. And compared, just size-wise... And if you like layers of admin, like compared to a Hollywood studio. Actually, I will say there's the old saying that um, you can't make a war film that is so anti-war it won't be co-opted. Right. Anti-war films have generally be 
being used as some of the most pro-war propaganda. Apocalypse, uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. However, I can think of a video game, a video game called Spec Ops The Line, which was also based on The Heart of Darkness, as Apocalypse Now was, which I think did manage to do a, f- a film has never managed to do, which is just paint a picture of war, which is so awful and so devoid of any glory or honour. Uh, or you know, that uh, it's, it's absolutely unusable as a way to sell war or as a way mm. to, to promote it. And I think that's part of the medium because you can make the character do things. So you can make the player do horrible things, not just see them. Yes, I see your point. Nasty. Sometimes I miss the cultural episodes, Michael. Yeah, we, we might go back for Christmas and do a special edition or something for the future. Get James back in and we'll do something on The Sopranos, which I know you'd love. However, uh, until then, uh, I think maybe it's time to just draw a gentle veil over this. We shall be back on Sunday talking about Jus Solis and Jus Sanguis. I always feel a little bit, frankly, Gary, a little bit uncomfortable talking about the law of blood. It all feels a little bit Germany circa 1935, but that's what we'll be talking about. And we, until then, stay safe and mind yourself and have a good weekend. Michael, it shouldn't bother you. It doesn't bother anyone else. <laughs> okay, dear. All the best. Bye-bye. <laughs>